0: We have seen some pretty drastic things, haven't we? We've seen this, uh, the seals open, the bowls open, the, uh, the, uh, the trumpets blown, and they've revealed the wrath of God against the sin specifically of Babylon and the sin of all of those who are rebelling against him across the world. And we have seen some pretty amazing things unfold, things that uh, really are mind-blowing. And so as we continue in this series called Final Analysis, we come to this turning point. Everything begins to turn now. And it's a a really remarkable turning point. And it's introduced by two songs. It's interesting. It's introduced by two hymns. As a matter of fact, you may not realize this, but the, uh, the book that has the most number of songs in Scripture is the book of Psalms because that means songs and so that would make sense the but the book that has the second number largest number of songs in scripture is is the book of revelation what does it say to us we are going to be singing a lot in heaven you excited about that I like music, I like singing, I enjoy it. We're going to be singing a lot in heaven. And so this book of Revelation now has two hymns. One we're not looking at today, the first one is in the first few verses of Psalm, uh, of Revelation 19. And in that hymn, uh, they're celebrating, really the hymn celebrates God's wrath against the rebellion of Babylon. And the rebellion of the Antichrist. And so that's the first hymn. The second hymn is the one that we're looking at today, and that hymn celebrates and anticipates the marriage supper of the Lamb. We'll talk in just a tad bit more detail next week about the timing of it, but this morning I want us to look at what I call the anatomy of a hymn. Every Old Testament hymn had these three characteristics. Every single one, every song that we sing today uh, to the Lord ought to have these three characteristics. What is the anatomy of a hymn? Number one, praises God. Number two, praises God for who he is. Number three, praises God for what he's going to do. As a matter of fact, if you look at some old historic hymns that we've sung for many years, almost every single one of them ends up in heaven. Almost every single one of them has a forward, future-looking glance. And so this morning, that's what we're going to do, is look at the anatomy of a hymn and look at how our lives ought to be one constant flow of singing to the Lord. And then when we finish the sermon, guess what we're going to do? We're going to sing. All right, so that makes sense, right? When we finish the sermon, when we finish learning what it means to praise God, we're going to sing. So sit up tall, pay attention, buckle in, We're going to go and just look at what happens here. Uh, John says that I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude. It's the third time he's heard this voice of a great multitude, and uh, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder. What does that mean? It means there are a lot of voices, and they're really loud, all right? So there are a lot of voices, and they're really loud, and they're crying out, and here is the word they're saying, hallelujah, or hallelujah, however you may say it. That's the word they're saying, now, I want to say to you that uh, words have a way of doing this. Words have a way of getting significantly overused, don't they? We say a word so often that it begins to lose its meaning. It begins to lose its significance. And hallelujah or hallelujah is one of those words. Why? Well, if you're if you, uh, going through traffic and uh, it seems to be a traffic jam, but you get through it quickly, you go hallelujah. then have to wait in traffic. Uh, well, that's... Probably not a hallelujah moment, you know, if, uh, if uh, you're at your favorite restaurant, and they bring out your dessert, and it's so good, you're like, hallelujah, I'm just, I'm so hungry, this is so good. That's not a hallelujah moment. You say, gee, how do you know? Well, this word, hallelujah, appears only four times in the book of Revelation, and they're all in chapter 19. Where does it come from? Uh, The word means praise Yahweh or praise the Lord. That's where we get the phrase praise the Lord. So where does the word come from? It comes from a section of Psalms. Psalm 113 through Psalm 118, they're called the Hallel Psalms because they Praise the Lord. So it comes from this section of psalms that are intended to praise the Lord. And they're called the Hallel Psalms. What were these psalms about? They're about the Passover. What is the Passover? Many of you know, but I'm sure some of you may not. Here's the Passover. There were all these plagues. And after every single plague, when Israel is in Egypt, Pharaoh's heart becomes harder. Harder, harder. There's the final plague, and it is the big plague of them all. What is it? That the firstborn children will die if that family does not take blood of a lamb that they have sacrificed and smear that blood over the doorpost. Uh, when when God passes by, if he doesn't see the blood, the firstborn child in That family is going to die. How many of you are firstborn, by the way? Raise your hand up high, up high. All right, look around. That night in Egypt, all of you would have died. All of you, unless your mom or dad had had faith in God. Don't miss this. To say, God said do this. I'll do this because he said do it. Now, we look back on it and go, okay, that's pretty... Pretty self-explanatory because we have the benefit of backward looking on this. But what I want you to get is that Israelites had already complained to Moses in the middle of the plagues because uh, the Pharaoh was making it harder on them. It wasn't the most natural thing to do to take something very valuable to you and sacrifice it. And smear its blood on a doorpost. They had never done this before. To do it took tremendous, remarkable faith. It still takes great faith. To put your trust in and your belief in Jesus Christ. I understand that. I understand that some of you are sitting here this morning wrestling with the idea, the archaic idea that Jesus died on the cross. His blood applied to your heart produces in you, in you the righteousness that when God looks at you, he passes over you. And no longer does he hold you in charge or responsible for in the sense of eternity your sins and some of you sit here this morning and go jerry that's so archaic it is so bloody it is so difficult for me to grasp yet it is true and so it took faith in that day and i would say this i shared this with my old testament class uh, that i teach on sunday nights i would say this that if any egyptian had done that they would have been spared too it was not because they were Israelites. It was because blood was applied to the doorpost and when God saw it, he passed over. These Hallel Psalms point back to that time when God did that and when Pharaoh saw that, and he heard the cries over all of Egypt of moms and dads weeping over dead children. Children they found uh, that were alive and, and happy and, and enjoying themselves the week, uh, the night before, now dead, those cries. And Pharaoh said, all right, you can go. The Hallel Psalms do not rejoice, by the way, over all the dead children they rejoice over the live ones and it is a glorious reminder for israel god took them out that's why hallelujah praise the lord moments most likely are are more rare than we consider them to be Just to tritely say praise the Lord because it's a cool thing to say or it's a habit that you have honestly diminishes true moments when you are in a desperate situation and God comes through and you say praise the Lord. We, we just ought to take those hallelujah moments seriously and wonderfully. Every hymn is a, is a hallelujah. It is a praise God. Number two, uh, we praise God for who he is. John calls him the Almighty. The Almighty. As a matter of fact, ten times in the, book, in the New Testament, this phrase or this title for God appears. None of the times it appears in the book of Revelation. So nine times in the book of Revelation, this phrase, this term for almighty appears. And, uh, and so he calls it that. Uh, he calls God almighty here. Now, it's easy for us to think about this and talk about this. It's easy for us to do that. But John did this when the Roman emperor of the day had called himself the Lord God. John did this when Rome was coming across the Mediterranean Sea and he, uh, on the Isle of Patmos, could see the ships on the horizon. John called God Almighty. John called God Almighty when Israel was enslaved to them, to Rome. It is one thing to call God almighty when life is great and everything's good and and, uh, the bills are paid and and health is good. It's another thing to call God almighty when life is unraveling. Amen? But John did. What does this term almighty mean? It means that God holds all things in his control. He's totally in charge. He is completely in charge in control. What does this teach us about God? God is totally in control when your life is out of control. He is. When your life is unraveling, God isn't caught by surprise. He isn't shocked by that. He is totally in control. How appropriate is this for us right now in the United States when we see a government that cannot manage, a government that cannot control things? How totally important is it for us right now when we see this to go, wow, our government may, may not be in control. Our government may not even know how to lead right now. But God is in control. Whatever it is, the circumstance that you face, to call to praise God for who he is when you have no clue what he's going to do is absolutely critical. Where do we see this? I had the privilege this week of preaching at Montreat at chapel. And as I did, I went over to Jehoshaphat Jehoshaphat is the king of Judah, the southern kingdom. And he gets word one day that not one, not two, but three kingdoms are marching in on him. And it is a bad day to be Jehoshaphat. It is a bad day to be Judah. It's found in 2 Chronicles 20. And I love uh, the honesty of this passage. Verse 3, Then Jehoshaphat, he's the king, was afraid and set his face to seek the Lord. I love the fact that he admits his fear, don't you? It's the very first step in realizing our need for the Lord is to say, okay, God, this scares the life out of me. I'm afraid. Some of you right now are facing diagnoses that are scary. They're, it's scary to hear that you have cancer. It is scary to hear that your uh, husband or your wife has done what they have done. And you sit here today and fear grips you because of where you are. Jehoshaphat was afraid. He's got three kings coming in on Judah, this southern kingdom. Jerusalem is the capital city of the southern kingdom. What does he do? He proclaims the fast throughout all Judah, and he assembled to seek help from the Lord. From all the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. And so everybody comes in together. Jehoshaphat says, we've got three enemies coming in, and everybody comes in. And here's his prayer. Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Jeru- Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court and said, he began to pray, O oh Lord God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? I love that. Are you not God in heaven? Jehoshaphat remembered and praised God for who he is. Are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nation. In your hand are power and might so that none is able to withstand you. When the kingdoms of the nations were marching in, Jehoshaphat stands before all the people, stands before the Lord. And here's what he says, God your God. You're up there. You're seeing everything that's, that's going right here. You know where the enemy's coming in from here. You know where the enemy's coming in from here. You know where the enemy is coming in from here. And even the king of this land and the king of these people and the king of these people, they're all yours. You praise God for who he is. It's not always, might I say, almost never do we sing in total confidence that all of the things in our lives that seem to be out of control, God has under control. It's tough, isn't it? Some of you, myself included, have control issues. You like to be in charge. You like for everything to be rolling along. And when things are out of control, you're figuring out. And when I even say you're not in control and God is in control, you're listening to me say, okay, I'm not in control. God is in control. How can I control the fact that I'm not in control and God is in control? Like you're hearing that go, okay, I've got to somehow put this in some system somehow to deal with the reality that I'm not in control. But I've got to have control over the reality I'm not in control. All right, so we struggle with the lack of control, do we not? Some of us do. Others are like, hey, I just like somebody else to be in charge. I'm I'm fine, you know. Let somebody else be in control. I'm good with that. And here we have a king. His job is to be in charge. And this king whose job is to be in charge uh, is unable to be in charge. He can't fight these enemies. There's no way. And so he praises God for who he is. He's praying this prayer. I love what he says. I love what he says in uh, verse 12. For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. God, I don't know what to do, but I'm looking at you. God, I don't know what to do, but my eyes are on you. Anybody ever been there? Anybody ever been to that place in your life? God, I don't know what to do with my marriage, but my eyes are on you. God, I don't know what what to do with my job situation, but my eyes are on you. That's what Jehoshaphat prayed. Jehaziel's in the crowd. He's a prophet. He speaks up. God had given him a word, and he says, we need not fear. We're not even going to have to fight. Very next day, what happens? They show up. I love what Jehoshaphat does. (laughs) He takes his singers. Yeah, that's right. He takes the, the musicians, and he puts them in front of the army, and so they go marching. Toward three enemies coming toward them. They go marching toward three enemies doing what? Singing. (laughs) They march singing. And when they do and the people hear them singing, the enemies hear them singing, they turn on one another, they destroy one another, and Judah is saved. We, We praise God for who he is. We praise him for who he is, even, wh- even when who we are doesn't make sense to us or, or, or what, what we're in the middle of makes no sense to us. Finally, we praise God for what he's going to do. What does John say? For the marriage of the Lamb has come. That phrase has come. You can supply finally between has and come because the tense that it is in suggests this anticipation. The wedding is finally here. I have the privilege of doing premarital counseling every single year with many, many couples and and doing loads of weddings. Inevitably, as they get closer to the wedding date, especially the groom, I'll meet with them. It might be the last or next to last premarital session I'm having. I'll meet with them. I'll say, how you guys are doing? And the guy will say, oh, I'm just ready for this thing to be here and be over. Right? He's ready to be married. He's just ready to be married. And and so usually the bride, it's always this case, but usually the bride, she's like, and all the details of working out all of this stuff. But but the wedding day, that's that's what it is. The, The wedding has finally come. Well, if there's going to be a wedding, then who's getting married? Here it is. We are pictured as the bride of Christ. So Christ is our husband, Isaiah. Isaiah 54, 5. Love this verse. For your maker is your husband. Look at this. The Lord Almighty is his name. The one who is totally in charge. That's the one who is your husband. Isaiah 61.10 He has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of righteousness as the bridegroom adorns his head like a priest and as the bride adorns herself with jewels. There is a great wedding day coming. There is a great day coming. A great day. A great wedding day. Now, We must understand how this worked in John's day. In John's day, there was a betrothal period. There was a betrothal period followed by the wedding. And we would liken that to engagement. But in John's day, uh, if you were betrothed to someone, you were as good as married. You say, how do we know that? Remember when Mary told Joseph that she was pregnant? What did Joseph say? They were engaged. They were betrothed. He considered whether or not he would do what? Divorce her. Because during that betrothal period, that engagement period, it is as serious as being married. And it ought to be. It ought to be today. Why? Because those rings cost a fortune. I mean, come on. Guys do everything in the world to pay for this diamond. So... It ought to be that serious. So at any rate, back on the subject, betrothal period. So what does this mean for the church? When you come to God by faith in Christ, you are in that moment betrothed, betrothed to Christ. He's your husband. From his vantage point, there is no breaking of that covenant. You are as good as married to him, but for all of your life, you spend anticipating the wedding. One day in heaven. Some people place this before the millennium. Others place it after. But one day in heaven when this wedding takes place and there is this massive marriage supper of the Lamb. You're like the couple sitting in premarital counseling saying, will it ever get here? You've had those moments this week. You've seen sin arise in your heart and think, will it ever get here? God, why am I so conflicted? Why am I so torn? You've seen that, haven't you? You've blown it and thought, oh, for the wedding day. Uh, You didn't think the wedding day, but that's what you're thinking. Oh, for the day when... This will all be made right, and there will no longer be this war within me between what I know to do and what I end up doing. I experienced this just yesterday. I'll just be transparent with you. I experienced it yesterday at the ball field, just out there watching my son play football, should just be enjoying myself, and I'm just there. Just enjoying myself. And, and I really was. And Trent's playing, and he's having a monster game. He's just a big kid, and he's having a monster game. And, and we win like eight to nothing. So it's this, you know, like a little nail biter for fifth graders. And we're playing Marion Elementary. So that's supposed to be like a big deal. And so the game is over. I'm turning to leave when this woman comes up to me with a bit of an attitude and looks at me and she says, What is your son's birthday? I'm like, hello, how are you? I don't even know who you are. Why should I tell you my son's birthday? And then I forgot. Like, I totally forgot. I couldn't think of it, so I said, it is June eighteenth, nineteen 1994, which would make him 19. <laughs> he shouldn't be on the team, okay? We got trouble there. You know, the kids failed fifth grade a lot. And so I no, 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 no! I have a daughter. That's her birthday, and I couldn't remember. I just couldn't. Re- I couldn't. Like, I never. I said, I said, "It's in December. Uh, it's December 18th. I don't know the year." And I'm thinking, oh, she knows he shouldn't be out there now. Like she knows because he's five foot four in the fifth grade and weighs like hundred and fifty pounds, he should not be out there. She knows it now. And so she just turns and leaves and goes over there to all her girlfriends and she's like, meh meh, 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 you know? And I'm thinking she's over there saying his dad doesn't even know his birthday. So I'm sure he's too old. Then I got mad. Like that's the time for me to go, Jerry, you're bonehead right now, leave. But, so I go over there, because I, you know, and I said, why you, do you need to know my son's birthday? I'm just kind of curious. Well, he's bigger than everybody out there. You know, well, I've been, you know, trying to lose weight a little myself. It runs in the family, all right? So we, we got issues here. And so he's bigger than everybody out there. I said, he's in the fifth grade. Well, I text the teacher, and she said, he's not. And I just got mad, like just mad. And I just said, you know, just said to her, I looked at her, I said, well, you're just lying. That's what I said. I promise you. And she said, you know, you know, I come to your church sometimes. And I knew you wouldn't put your son out there and cheat. Yeah, but his daddy's acting like an idiot right now. My son's doing great. Daddy's blowing it. And I feel like a total idiot at this point. And so I leave, you know, tail tucked between my legs. I'm going home, and I text Wendy, who's at Hannah's game. And I said, honey, I blew it today. The Holy Spirit is so convicting me. I hope this woman goes back when Trent plays this afternoon. I hope she's there. And so I come in, and sure enough, she is. And I go tail tucked between my legs down to this woman, kneel down, and say, I'm so sorry. I acted the way I did earlier. Oh, I've forgotten it. She said, it's good. It's good. It's over. I said, well. Had a miserable afternoon, thought about it all afternoon, acted like an idiot, you know. (gasps) Do you know what? I long for that day when I don't have that happening in me. Do you? Do you long for that day when you know the right thing and the wrong thing presents itself and you so want to do the right thing and and the wrong thing is like, "Ah," you know, and the Holy Spirit's saying, Jerry, go home, and, you know, the flesh is like, go over there, and, and you have that. Any of you there this week? Anybody? the room don't leave me hanging maybe okay all right thought I was alone in that yes that's where we are isn't it we praise God for what he's what is he is going to do why because it says it was granted to her to clothe herself now that seems to be contradictory because it is it was granted to her to clothe herself what does that mean? Philippians 2, 12 and 13. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Why? For it is God who works in you, but the and to work for his good pleasure. You work out what God works in. It's the two-sided, two-sided coin of grace. On one side, God gives you grace to do the right thing. And on the other side, you take that grace and you do the right thing. Work out what God works in. You work out what God through the Spirit works into you. That's what he's talking about here. Well, some of, some people look at that and go, oh, uh, because the very next sentence says that this robe, this, this wedding gown is is woven together of the threads of this person. Uh, the righteous deeds or uh, the, the threads of the gown are the righteous deeds. And they go, wow, so, so I do these good things and God says, hey, come on in. No, because the metaphor totally changes. It's called a mixed metaphor. Why in the world do authors use mixed metaphors to communicate dual images about the same entity? So check this out. In one sense, we're the bride. Immediately in the very next verse, we're the invited guest. Well, how can you be the bride and the invited guest at the wedding? You really can't. But we are. What does that mean? It means, number one, that all your righteous deeds, producing you by the Spirit, but you do them by the works. James talked about this. Are null and void unless God invites you to the wedding and you accept his invitation. What does that mean? There's nothing good enough you could do. There there are no good enough righteous deeds to be in this wedding. Lest, lest we think, John says, You're only here because you're invited. And you respond to the invitation.